Good morning, everybody. This is um, this is going to be a different kind of message. Usually, I start off my messages by saying, "Turn over." If you have your Bibles, turn over to this particular scripture. And what I like to do in preaching is go through the text of scripture. Well, this is going to be a little bit different. This is a little bit more off the cuff. I've got an outline that I'm going through, uh, but it's just a skeleton of things. This is more like a, a Friday casual conversation of Christians getting together and talking about the Word and the approach to the Word. Now, we're eventually going to make our way down to the sign of Jonah because um, the sign of Jonah is, one, something that the church is just lost on, and then two, once we go through my introductory notes, I want to I want to get, get to the sign of Jonah so I can show you what I'm talking about in these introductory notes. And part of that is deconstructing assumptions that we come into church and actually we hear with a lot of preaching. Um, we just have to reframe our minds when it comes to the Bible and what this Bible actually means and does and how it pertains to us. Like, the first thing I have on my notes is, the Bible is not a technical manual, but we often treat it like one. You know, these days you buy a, uh, a digital camera, and digital cameras come with instruction manuals that are over 100 pages long. Because these cameras do so many things and have so many menus and all this other stuff. And, you know, the, the reason for the booklet is so you can use the camera the way that you want to use it. Unfortunately, that is a lot of times the way that we approach the Word of God. You know, um, we approach it as a technical manual. What is this going to do for me today or this week? And much preaching is based upon that framework. You know, the preachers say, well, what do I need to do to bring out to get my people through the week instead of bringing my people into the narrative of Scripture? And it's a vast difference. It's a huge difference with the way that we walk out our salvation. You know, when you go to the Bible and you just, just open it up and go through it, you see that it has poetry it contains histories, prophetic oracles, revelation, first-hand accounts of people. All these things work together as little pieces of a huge mosaic of the plan of redemption. And we usually, what? We miss the forest for the trees. I mean, to use that phrase. Why? Because we we fail to pay attention to the larger narrative at hand. What is the narrative? It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God sending forth his son in order to save the world. And then what, what does that mean to us? How does that affect us? Whether we're believers or unbelievers, actually, because what you go to the word and the word talks about unbelievers and the ultimate judgment. So that's one point that I want to bring out, well, I bring out in my notes. The second one is, in today's church, we tend to flatten out the scriptures. You know, uh, a lot of times what preachers do is they preach topical sermons, which they're not bad per se, but, you know, you go through the thinking on it. I mean, backtrack and it's like, all right, um, I want to get this point across you know, uh, the, the kingdom of God is about joy or something like that. And then they just look at a lot of scriptures about joy to support this one idea they have. Instead of wrestling with the scriptures and trying to figure out why the writers are wrote what they wrote. You know, why did Matthew write his gospel this way? Why did Mark emphasize one thing over another or excluded a lot of facts, but included a lot of facts with certain accounts? In today's church, there's no narrative. 
there's no understanding of where we fit in because the preaching is all about us instead of all about God's plan of redemption that involves him sending forth his son into the earth and effectuating redemption in the earth. It's a big story. And we are part of the story. The story really isn't about us per se. It's about God redeeming the world. That is the story of the gospel. Amen. So that is, that is actually skeleton point number two. Now, what I want to try to do in this message is get you to see the word in a new light. And that might mean that you have to listen to the message a few times, not just once. Some of you might get it right off the bat, but you listen to it a few times and you, you will see the word in a new light, especially when we get down to the sign of Jonah. Because I can tell you that uh, I, I have not found. I haven't found Googling commentaries, sermons, or uh, any other source, anyone who has preached the sign of Jonah the way I'm going to preach it in this message. But you're going to see that it's scriptural. You're going to see how it amplifies the, the story of redemption and how it fits in. Why Jonah is even in the book. It's cool. You're going to see it. So, next thing I need to do is I need to kill some sacred cows. Kind of disabuse our minds of some of these things that have entrench themselves in modern-day preaching that is not supported in the Scriptures. First one is, and I listened to a preacher just last week who preached this. And in fact, I watched a YouTube video yesterday with another preacher who referred to this and basically preached it this way. And that is, the law as a way to earn salvation. Now, when you when you go to the New Testament, and if you read the book of Romans, you have to deal with what Paul calls the law. You also have to deal with it in, in the book of Galatians. Those two books deal with the law. I mean, the law is front and center. Now, there's some preaching that says that the law is kind of like this uh, overarching principle so to speak, you know, or the law is the way that societies govern themselves. That's the way those two preachers uh, preached it. But that's wrong. The law is actually the Old Testament. The law is, uh, there was, is called the Torah by the Jews, and it can mean one of two things or used one of two ways. The first way is that it means the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And that's where you hear about the law of Moses. That's the Pentateuch. The Torah can also refer to the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. Basically, what we consider to be the Old Testament. And when you read the book of Romans, and when you read Galatians, and, and you, you hear Paul's references to the law... He's referring to the Torah. Now, the thing is, the preaching today says that, well, the law was a way for the Jews to earn their salvation. And the thing is, the Jews never looked to the law as a way to earn their salvation. The Jews knew that they were a called people of God. You go back to the story of Abraham. God shows up and says, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you. God was the protagonist in that covenant. He's the one who came to Abraham and said, I'm making this covenant. So there never was a question of the Jews having to earn salvation because God appeared to Abraham and said, I am going to make this covenant with you. I think uh, when you go back to church history, 
you have, I think it was Luther. I'm not going to say for sure it was Luther because you don't know who preached it first back then, but in Reformation days, uh, you had this, this so-called revelation of grace as opposed to earning salvation. And that's the way it's been preached ever since. But really, when you look at scriptures, the law is not a way to earn salvation. There are several purposes of the law in scripture. But one of the purposes was to mark out the Jews from the rest of the world. You had, back in that day, you had the Jews, and then you had everybody else. You were either a Jew or a non-Jew. You were either part of Israel or you were not. And that's the way that the world was divided, back in the Old Covenant. The Jews were Abraham's family, and the, and the covenant was shown by circumcision. That was one reason for the Torah. And when you look at Romans 9, you see that there were benefits to Israel because Israel received the law. Paul goes over that. And uh, there are different kinds of facets about Israel's benefit from the law. Now, one thing about the law, or what we might call the Torah, is that through it, Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. Let me read to you a couple verses in Isaiah just to kind of back up that claim. The first one is Isaiah 42.6. Now, I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version because it's just easier to understand. 42.6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, listen to this, a light to the nations. That word nations there, if you go back to the King James, the word is Gentiles. And so the modern translations translate uh, its ethne as nations. And when you go back to the old older versions like the King James, you have Jew and Gentile. That's how it's translated. So you see here just with Isaiah 42.6, you see that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. And we're going to see Jesus talk about that in the Gospels later on in the message. Let me read you another one. This is 49.6. And this is uh, part B of the verse. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation is may reach to the end of the earth. Well, in fact, let me read the whole verse to you. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel? I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And you see, that is Old Testament. That is, that is to Israel. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute. Um, we have the New Testament now, and I've heard that being preached about Jesus. That might be the case. And that's something that we might be able to get to later. But here, Old Testament, the Jews take the Scripture as applying to what? To themselves, that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Let me do you one more. Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So, what we see really is, is this. Uh, well, in fact, let me read this since I have it in my notes. God appears to Abraham in Genesis 17, 4, and says, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of many nations. Well, that just goes what? That goes right in line with what I just read in Isaiah. You know, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Here, God shows up as early as Genesis 17 and speaks to Abraham and says, I have made you the father of not just one nation, 
many nations. Not just the Jews, but a father of many nations. Israel was supposed to showcase God to the world. And that runs all the way through the Old Testament, and you're going to be surprised, but actually it runs through the Gospels as well. And that's something you don't hear every day in Sunday pulpits. Think about that for a minute. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, even as late as the Gospels. And when you, keep, when you have that in mind, you read Jesus' statements to the Pharisees and everybody else in a totally different light. He wasn't just some kind of teacher. You know, in fact, I've even heard this preach. You know, uh, some preachers talking out loud to say, well, you know, Jesus entered his earthly ministry, and his earthly ministry was about three and a half years. And, you know, he was just kind of wandering around, kind of waiting to die. No, his ministry was not that. It was not just waiting around. He wasn't just, you know, going here and there and kind of teaching, just kind of waiting for things to, uh, you know, uh, get stirred up where the Jews would finally say, hey, we need to kill him. No, his ministry was very direct. Very, very direct. And uh, his ministry, his earthly ministry, involved much more than, like I said, that you usually hear on Sunday mornings. And we'll get into it some as we go through this message. So, going back to the first point, uh, the law, the Torah, is not, was not a way for the Jews to earn salvation. In fact, you can say that the Torah actually was a way to be a light unto the Gentiles. Because we read that in Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 6, and 60, verse 3. And then you go back to Abraham, where God says, I have made you the father of many nations. Well, how in the world is that going to happen? You know, that's one reason for the Torah. That's one reason for the Old Testament. So Israel would be a light to the rest of the world. Because why? You had Israel, and then you had the rest of the world. Okay, sacred cow number two. In the Gospels, you see over and over and over these guys, these guys who are Pharisees. I mean, Jesus is coming up against the Pharisees over and over and over again. And, you know, frankly, you can go through years and years of church and not have a clue of who these guys are or why Jesus keeps on running into them. You know, I did. I did for, for a long period of time. I mean, years after I became a full gospel Christian where you know, it's like, well, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, and nobody explained who in the world the Pharisees were. Now, before I get into it, uh, one, one thing about Pharisees is they always seem to be characterized as religious people. And sure, yeah, they are religious, but what I'm talking about is, you know, uh, the, the conventional line is Pharisees are religious people, and God doesn't like religious people. He wants people of real faith. He doesn't want people of fake faith, and the Pharisees had this sort of fake faith. That's the conventional line in preaching. Well, think about it a minute. I mean, I'm a Christian. People would say, and there are a lot of people I know who think I'm religious. I pray. I read the Word. I walk out the scriptures. I want to attend church. I want to congregate with people of like faith. So what? I'm religious. How is it that I'm different from a Pharisee? Because the Pharisees, they prayed. What? They went to the temple and all this other stuff. It's not that God doesn't like religious people. Actually, he wants people to be religious in that sense. He wants them to pray to walk out the word, to, uh, to read scripture, and read scripture, what, privately and also corporately. 
to gather around the Word and to live out the Word. So what's the deal with these Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes? Because you see them time and time again in the Gospels. Well, step back and think about it for a minute. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel begged God for a king. And God said, well, you really don't want a king. And Israel kept on begging and actually said, we want to be like the world. Give us a king, and God relented and gave them a king. Fast forward to the Gospels. Israel doesn't have a king. So who in the world is ruling Israel? I mean, who is leading the people? You know, is it just some, you know, cooperative group who just, you know, hey, I'm a Jew, you're a Jew, and, and, and there, there's no governance at all of these people? No. I said, what filled in the vacuum by the time of the Gospels were the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were the ones who told you what the law said because they were what? They were the scribes. They were the ones who wrote out the old covenant. The Sadducees were part of the priestly um, priesthood when you go back and you research that. Now, the Pharisees were a little bit different because they weren't part of the priesthood, but these, they were the what, what you might call the professional preachers of the Torah at that time. So the three of these uh, became pretty much the unstated leadership of Israel in the day at the time of the Gospels. And that's one reason why you see Jesus butting up against them and even John the Baptist, remember? John the Baptist tears out of the water at some Pharisees and says the axe is at the root of the tree. Think of it this way. When Jesus or John the Baptist are speaking to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they are speaking to Israel. That will change the way that you read the Gospels from here on out. And what? It's in line with the gospel narrative. It's in line with this overall story of redemption. When you see Pharisees said, okay, he's basically speaking to Israel. And Israel is speaking to him. That's one way to look at the Pharisees and Sadducees also. And that brings up just another point that I have, and that is framing. A lot of times we frame things the wrong way when we read the Word. And one thing that I encourage you to do is don't read the Word, don't read the Bible like a statutory book. You know, I practice as a lawyer. I deal with statutes all the time. They are not good reading. They're not fun to read. They are, uh, you know, they come from committees and all that kind of thing, and they are just legislation. The book is not written like legislation. The book, uh, the Bible, the Bible uh, is written, as Peter said, of by men who were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's better read like a mystery novel, like a mystery drama in a way. The writers wrote with a purpose. They left out what wasn't relevant and what did not contribute to the narrative. I mean, think of it. Think about it. You have, um, you have John. John writes a gospel, and at the end of his gospel, he says, Jesus did so many miracles that all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain them. So you go back to his gospel, and his gospel, I think, is about it's 20 or 21 chapters. It's not that long. So what did John do? Well, he picked out, you know, as inspired by the Holy Ghost, he picked out what uh, the Holy Ghost inspired him to write and left out what the Holy Ghost inspired him not to write. Why? Because he had a message. There is a message in the gospel. There's a purpose to bring uh, the wedding at Canaan. There's, there's a purpose 
to write that and include it in the gospel. There are other things that Jesus did that the Holy Spirit said, no, you don't include that in the gospel because what? It doesn't contribute to the overall narrative the way that I want it done. See what I mean? You had the same thing with Matthew, same thing with Paul, same thing with all the gospel writers. They wrote with purpose. Now, I'm going to say this because I'm sure a lot of you haven't heard this before, but this is really the way it is. The Gospels reflect Jesus' message to Israel. Yes. I mean, we have this idea that the Gospels, like I said, that Jesus was just the teacher, kind of like waiting around, you know, kind of teaching people uh, kind of like proverbial wisdom until things got so hot for him that he was going to have to die. It's not that way. There are reasons why he kept on clashing with the Pharisees. When you read John 9 and the story of the raising of Lazarus, and you go through and you see that Jesus, when he's talking to Mary and Martha, he's talking about that larger narrative when he said, this sickness is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. It's all part of the narrative, the overarching story of redemption. Coolest thing that you could ever see in all the, when you see that in the Gospels. Amen. Now, when I say the Gospels reflect Jesus' message to Israel, let me read to you a couple verses. Because we skip over these and we shouldn't skip over them. There's a reason why they're included in the Gospels. Um, Matthew 10.5, Jesus says this. It says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now get that. Let that sink in a minute. Jesus is commissioning twelve disciples to go out, and he says, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles, and don't enter any town of the Samaritans. The Samaritans back then were considered to be half-breeds. They weren't considered to be true Israelites because of a dispute about the place of worship. And Jesus says, don't go to them either. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when you read that, you have to sit back and think, well, why is he doing that? Why is he sending his disciples only to Israel and no other place? It's got to be, or it has to be connected to, the fact that his message was to Israel. Amen. What he was doing had to do with Israel. Let me bring up another one. This is Matthew 15, uh, 21 to 24. Says Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman, now she's not a Jew, she's Canaanite, she's a Gentile. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. Now, stop there a minute. I, I could preach on this for an hour. She says, Son of David. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew, but she's recognizing he is Israel's Messiah. Now listen to verse 23. She shouts this out, and he says, but he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps on shouting after us. And he answers, and he says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, isn't that wild? You have Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We call him Christ and think it's the last name. It's, that's Messiah. But in the Gospels, this woman comes to him and starts shouting, and his response is, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Now, the account is she goes on and she says something that is um, so, so smart. She says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And you can relate that. And one reason why I could preach on that for an hour is the Gentiles are getting the crumbs from what? From Israel. And her daughter is healed. But notice what Jesus says. I'm sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you put that in the context of the Gospels. And then the Gospels start to sound a whole lot different than what you're used to hearing. Amen. Now, saying that, let me bring this up, because a lot of people, you know, uh, we kind of read the Word without thinking it through. And the Lord wants us to think the Word through. You know, you walk out your salvation, actually, intelligently. Intelligently, based upon the revelation of redemption. It's not a mindless walk. It's one where you know facts and you know, uh, you know th- the invisible things. Not the things that are just seen, but the invisible things, and you walk those out. That is the walk of faith. Let me ask you this, because if you can answer it, then you're way ahead of the crowd. Why do the Gospels make such a big deal about Jesus being crowned king of the Jews. I mean, what is that all about? You know, each gospel deals with the fact that Jesus is taken into custody, and what? The the Roman soldiers put a robe on him, he's got a crown of thorns put on him, and they mock him as king of the Jews. Now, let me read to you John 19, verses 19 through 22. This is about Pilate. You know, Pilate puts an inscription on Jesus' cross. A lot of you, you know, a lot of you are familiar with this. But let me read to you the account, because a lot of times, man, we just, we just bulldoze over this without really considering why this happened and why it's contained in the Gospels. John 19, 19. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Nobody was going to miss this. Verse 21, Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, But write this, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Basically, they're going to Pilate and they're saying, uh, don't call him the king of the Jews. Why don't you put on your little inscription, you put him that he called himself the king of the Jews, and that way they could say that he was an imposter. But notice what Pilate says. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Let that sink in a little bit. What I have written, I have written, meaning that we have crucified the king of the Jews. The Jews hated to hear that. That's why they came to Pilate. They they didn't want that to happen. But it happened that way. And the Gospels record it that way. The Holy Ghost moved on the Gospel writers to record it for us. The question is, why? Why did God do that, and why did John write that? Why did he make sure it was in his gospel, which his gospel is what? Now, I'll give you a hint about Jesus dying as king of the Jews. You know, we don't have kings these days. We have parliaments and congresses and, you know, whatever. Um, But when you go back in the day, uh, countries, nations were all summed up in their king. You want to go take a nation out, you go to the head and you kill the king. The king represented his people, and Jesus represented Israel. In fact, you you can even, uh, I've even preached it this way because it's scriptural. 
you know, uh, all of Israel was focused down to Jesus on the cross. He was Israel on the cross when he was crucified, and you see that with Pilate. Amen. Pilate recognized that. Now, did Pilate know the plan of redemption? Probably not, but what? He said, I have written what I have written, and that was significant for the plan of redemption. Now, I told you that you'll start uh, reading your Bible with a fresh set of eyes. Let me, uh, let me show you an example before we get into the um, sign of Jonah. Remember when... Um, Remember when Jesus was in the temple and he brought a whip and he started overturning the temples and all that stuff, you know? Um, theologians have called that the cleansing of the temple. I don't know who came up with that, but that's really just wrong. He wasn't trying to clean up the temple. He was, he was delivering a message about the temple and about Israel. Remember what he says when he does that. In fact, let me read it from Mark 11. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, most preaching concentrates on the money changers and, you know, the uh, sacrificial animals there at the temple. And there's been all kinds of theories about, well, you know, the money changers weren't changing out the money the right way. They were kind of pocketing some of it, uh, you know, unjustified commissions, or they were selling some, you know, one-eyed pigeons and stuff like that. None of it is based upon what we read in the, in the Gospels. It's speculation. But let me throw this out at you. Look at what he says. Because Jesus is quoting Old Covenant here. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And what's it say? For all nations. But you've made it a den of thieves. Well, who in the world has made it a den of thieves? He's talking to what? The leaders of Israel. He's talking to Israel. One thing that you'll see, and we're, gonna, we're about to get into with the sign of Jonah is that Israel was commissioned to be the light of God to the nations. And instead of being a light to the nations, Israel wanted to monopolize her position as God's chosen. That's what you see all throughout the Gospels, and uh, that's what you see Jesus butting up against with the Pharisees time and time again. And the Gospels involve the judgment of Israel for that, and actually Jesus taking on that judgment in Israel's place. Now, I know that's a lot to, uh, to sink in. You probably haven't heard too much of that before, but let's go over to Jonah, and um, you're going to see how this is brought about. You're going to see this through, actually, the sign of Jonah. Now remember, um, and I'll read, I'll read it later, but Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and they're demanding a sign from him. You know, Israel's demanding a sign. He said, uh, show us a sign by the authority that you do these things. And Jesus responds and says what? He says, a sign? You want a sign? Uh, I'll give you a sign. And this is the only one that you're going to get. It's the sign of Jonah. And then he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights or he says sea monster in the New Testament, in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. He also says some other things, but he connects himself directly to Jonah. Now, I'll tell you, you can, you can get all kinds of commentaries because I've gone through them all. I've gone through all the books, and it seems like nobody really understands what Jesus was talking about when he says sign of Jonah. But you're going to understand the sign of Jonah by the end of this message. Amen. So, uh, like I said, um, let's deal with Jonah now. And I'm not going to ask you to open up your book. I'm just going to ask you to 
um, sit back and listen. And think about this. Because Jonah is very short. It's only four chapters. You can read it in probably less than 10 minutes. So you don't need to flip through pages. You just need to think about it. Now, let me, um, let me first start with Jonah with talking about the usual line of preaching. And you'll see this everywhere. The usual line of preaching is Jonah, the cost of disobedience. And you hear all this talk about God's sovereign will and that you can't outrun God. In fact, here's a, here's a line from a sermon I looked at this week. What is your Nineveh? The big thing that God wants you to do, but you don't want to do. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Jonah, let me just refresh you with the story. God speaks to a prophet named Jonah and tells him to preach to a city named Nineveh. Now, let me throw in here that Nineveh is a city of Gentiles. Jonah is what? He is a Jew. He is an Israelite. And God tells him to go outside of Israel and preach to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't do that. He flees in the opposite direction. And actually, the story is almost comical because he boards a ship and sails to Tarshish, which is the furthest destination away that he can get from Nineveh. While he's on the ship, a storm arises, the crew gets scared, throws him overboard to save themselves from the fury of the storm, and the scriptures say that God prepares a great fish that swallows Jonah up. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, the whale. Um, Jonah records, there, there, is a, um, there is a section in Jonah where we hear echoes of his prayers while he's in the belly of the fish. After three days and three nights, the fish spits him out on the beach. He makes it over to Nineveh. He preaches and the whole city repents and is saved from judgment. That's the story of Jonah. And then at the end, in uh, chapter 4, there is a small story of what the King James calls a gourd or a plant. And I'm going to cover that um, with the sign of Jonah. So that's the setup. Um, that is Jonah in a nutshell. Going back to the usual line of preaching, usual line is the cost of disobedience. And you hear sermons about, you know, God tells you to do something, and if you run the other way, well, he's going to make you do the thing that you don't want to do, even to the extent of getting you swallowed up by a fish. And you know what? None of that really makes an impact on anybody because nobody today is swallowed up by any kind of fish. And nobody has any kind of testimony saying that God, you know, did all this weird, weird stuff to make them do something they didn't want to do. But here you have this line of preaching. What is your Nineveh? The big thing God wants you to do, but you don't want to do. And then uh, the next line is, God delivers us even if we resist his guidance in our lives. That has nothing to do with Jonah. Just flat out nothing. Um, you know, I'm at the point now that... Uh, if, if I'm sitting through a sermon where the preacher is preaching that way on Jonah, I'm going to get up and leave because I've got better things to do because Jonah has nothing to do with that. Now let's go through the story. Let's go through the big picture of Jonah and you're going to see how it, gosh, it's just, it's just so great. It's such a great um, seed form, germ form, of the gospel and what we see uh, of the gospel, the, the redemptive narrative and what we see in the gospels. First of all, the thing to notice is that Jonah was a prophet, and that's a big deal in the book of Jonah. 
we think today that prophets just speak, you know, that we just, you know, somebody's a prophet. In fact, you can go to YouTube and you can find all kinds of prophets and it's a, they're talking whatever. Um, that is not the way a lot of prophets operated with the Spirit of God in the Old Covenant. And in fact, you can go to the, the New Testament in the book of Acts. There's a prophet named Agabus who did similarly what we see with the Old Testament prophets, and that is act things out. Let me read to you um, an account about Isaiah, who was a prophet. Now, what I'm getting to is what theologians call dramatic actions, and that's basically this. A lot of times prophets acted things out in order to make a point, in order to show the people something. They didn't just bark it out, you know, with a megaphone. They acted things out. So let me read to you Isaiah 20 about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 20 reads, In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by King Sargon of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought it and took it, At that time, the Lord had spoken to Isaiah, son of Amos, saying, now listen to this, go and loose the sackcloth from your loins and take the sandals off your feet. And he had done so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Ethiopia, So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as captives and the Ethiopians as exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Did you catch that? God speaks to his prophet Isaiah and he says, take off your clothes, take off your sandals. And God had him walk naked for three years as a sign to Israel not to, uh, not to uh, hook itself up with Egypt against Assyria. So this is going to be the future of Egypt. This is going to be the future of Ethiopia, God was saying to Israel. Just look at Isaiah, and don't look at him for just a day. Look at him for three years this way. Isaiah was a prophet. Let me read one more to you so you just get the gist of it. This is Jeremiah with a, um, with a linen loincloth. Jeremiah 13. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and buy yourself a linen loincloth and put it on your loins, but do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you bought and are wearing and go down to the Euphrates, which is a river. Hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, go now to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. But now the loincloth was ruined. It was good for nothing. Now verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, Just so I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Both of those constitute Israel. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own will and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. So you notice that Jeremiah could have, he could have said, hey, I've got an illustration for you. Uh, Let me tell you about a loincloth. You know, let's just imagine a loincloth. He didn't do that. Said the Lord had him act this out. It was a dramatic action the same way as Isaiah. Now, let's go back to Jonah. The prophet is told to preach to whom? The Gentiles. 
You might say, you could put it this way, because actually it fits in its scriptural, that uh, Jonah was told to be a light unto the nations. In fact, Jonah is a type of Israel. When God says, go preach to Nineveh, you can take it as God is speaking to Israel to take his gospel to the nations, to the rest of the world, to be a light unto the nations. We read that in Isaiah. And what happens? He runs the other way. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he runs the other way. What's the effect? The effect is the Gentiles are cut off from salvation, right? Because they don't hear the preaching. Now, here's the interesting thing. In Jonah 4, Jonah says why he ran. You know, he runs the other way and boards a ship. And it, when, it's, when he's on the ship, you know, they get, the, the crew gets scared of him because they know that the God of Israel is the real God, and they throw him overboard to save their own lives, save their own skin. Now listen to what Jonah says to the Lord in chapter 4. You know, his running is in chapter 1, but in chapter 4, we hear him talk, and he says this. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. Jonah says, I ran because I knew that they were going to repent and God was going to be merciful. And it says it right there in, in chapter 4. So, so why in the world did he run? He ran because he wanted to monopolize his position. He didn't want salvation for the rest of the world. He wanted to keep salvation to himself. He wanted to maintain his position as God's own chosen. So he, sa so he says in in chapter 4, the thing is, you got an honest prophet there who says, hey, the reason why I fled to Tarshish is that I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And he basically says, I wasn't about to take that message to the Gentiles. Amen. And in fact, in verse 3, Jonah 4, 3, he says, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And that's after Nineveh, after he had preached to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented. Jonah says, take my life. You know, it's, it's not worth living anymore. It's not worth living anymore, not being your only chosen. Amen. Now, let's take a look at Jonah fleeing. And he's cast overboard. And, and what? He's swallowed up by fish. Now, the very beginning of, the, uh, of Jonah, like I said, he is a type of Israel. Because Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, and Israel refused to be that light. It kept the gospel hid up unto herself. Now, Jonah's thrown overboard, and he's swallowed by a whale, a fish, a sea monster. Let's go back to Jesus on the cross. Remember he is crucified as what? King of the Jews. He, like I said, is basically Israel on the cross. So you see that Jonah is what? Thrown overboard, swallowed up in the belly of the whale, 
three days and three nights. And what do you see with Jesus? Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Son of Man was Israel then. Jonah, uh, the account is that after three days and three nights, the whale spits him up on the beach. Listen to Acts 2.24, talking about Jesus. But God raised him up, having freed him from death. Why? Because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then what happens after Jesus is resurrected? We see that the gospel is spread over to the Gentiles. At first, what? You have Peter and the rest of the apostles keeping, keeping the gospel just what? Shut up with the Jews. But then what happens? Peter is up on the roof of a house. He receives a vision, and it's got all these unclean animals on it. And the Lord says, Peter, rise up and eat. Says it three times, and Peter says, no way. I'll never do that. And then what happens? He's taken to Cornelius' house, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost comes on the Gentiles. Peter's attitude was still somewhat like Jonah's, which was what? Which was Israel's. Amen. You see how all this ties together. And that's why you have that story of Jonah that nobody really understands. Why? Because he is a type of Israel. He is acting like the other prophets. The only thing is the, the other prophets were in on the dramatic action. You know, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, I want you to do this, this, and this, and Jeremiah complies. What you see with Jonah is you see a recalcitrant prophet, and God knew exactly what he was doing with that prophet. And that's where you have this dramatic action of Jonah who is acting out the, uh, the disobedience of Israel of being a light to the Gentiles. Amen. Amen. So uh, over in uh, Jonah 4, you have this little tiny story about the gourd or um, the, uh, the NRSV calls it a bush. So let me read the account to you uh, because it's short. Um, Jonah preaches to Nineveh. You know, he spit out on the beach. He goes and he preaches to the city and all the city. In fact, uh, it says that even the animals repented, you know, at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah gets mad about that. Again, he's a type of Israel. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under in the shade, seeing or waiting to see what would become of the city. Notice this next part, because again, you can, you can Google this, you can look at books, and they're all over the place. But um, in verse 6, it says, The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, so it withered. When the sun arose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. I mean, get this. This is just wild. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and you didn't grow, and it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do, know, who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? So you catch the story, you know, 
Jonah goes out. God causes a bush to give him comfort and shade, and he loves it. But then just as fast as the bush came up, a worm came and made it wither. And so Jonah's out there in the heat, and he says, it's better for me to die than to live. What's the deal with this bush? The bush represents the Torah, is a type of the Torah. God comes to Abraham and says, I've, I've made you the father of many nations. And then later on, you've got the, what, the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was uh, kind of like an actor in a play. You know, imagine the story of redemption as a five-act play, and that's in, uh, that's in the second stage of the play. The law of Moses comes in, but by, by the third act, uh, it exits the stage. Why? Because Jesus is resurrected. It was temporary. The law was temporary, kind of like it's like this bush. And the thing about the law was, as God says to Jonah here, you're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. God came to Abraham and said, I've made you the father of many nations. And he made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't do anything on his own to create this, to create the covenant. And then later on, the law of Moses. God did it. God initiated the action. He consummated what? The covenant with Abraham's seed. So what you have is a type of the law where Jonah, like the Jews, like Israel, enjoyed the law for a time, but it was for a time. It wasn't for all time. It was put in place until what? Until the faith could come. Let me read to you Galatians 3.23, because this puts it in perspective. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It said, now before faith came, when you go back into the Greek, you see that it's called the faith. And in fact, faith there is personified. It's like a character in a play. It said, now before the faith came, before the faith arrived, before the faith entered, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law or under the Torah until the faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until what? Christ came. Who's Christ? The faith. So that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. The disciplinarian was the bush. So you see how Jonah makes all the sense in the world when you frame things the right way. It is a little microcosm of the story of Israel in the face of refusing to be a light unto the nations. Now, to, uh, to kind of wrap this up, let me read to you, let me read to you Luke 11.29 um, and some verses from that where Jesus is talking to people of Israel about the sign of Jonah, because you're going to see this in a new light. Luke 29, and when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with, with this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. Queen of the south was not a Jew. The people of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. People of Nineveh were Gentiles. Now, notice what Jesus says 
in the very same breath or the very next breath, he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts a cellar, puts it in a cellar, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Remember that Israel was supposed to be a light unto the nations. And what's he saying here? No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar. Your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if it's not healthy, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, consider whether the light in you is not darkness. He's speaking to Israel. And you see in other, in other Gospels, he says what? He says, you are, uh, you are the city on the hill. He's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the people of Israel about being a light to the Gentiles. The thing is, Israel acted like Jonah. And so what happens? Well, you see it with John the Baptist. He tears over, <laughs> tears out of the water over to the Pharisees, and he says, now the axe is at the root of the tree. There's judgment coming on Israel. Jesus took on that judgment. He became a curse, what, under the Torah, under the Old Testament, Deut Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. He became a curse. Why? So the gospel could be sent out to the whole world. Amen. So it matters how we frame the issues. It matters how we frame things in the Word, how we see them and how we read them. Going back, the Bible is not a technical manual, but we need to read it right. We can't flatten out the scriptures. We need to see, we need to see the depth, and you see that with Jonah. Jonah was a type of Israel, and if you just read it, what, you flatten out the story, that's what you see with the sermons that say, you know, here's a believer, this is disobedience, and God will get you in the end. I said, no. The deeper, richer story supports the redemptive narrative, and this particular story of Jonah is a story of Israel. And that's why you see Jesus tearing into what? The temple and saying, uh, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it a den of thieves. How has Israel made it a den of thieves? You just have to take a look at the prophet Jonah because that's how Israel was acting towards the rest of the world. Amen. Okay, that's all the time we have. Let me uh, conclude with a benediction. Now may the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.